welcome to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, which are now entering their fourth year of broadcast. Who would have thought that when Seth died in 2014, all these years later we would be making a podcast in his memory? It's a really exciting time for Charlotte and me. We've been recording 30 podcasts, one for each day in November, as part of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Charlotte has been talking to all kinds of people involved with pancreatic cancer and over the next 30 days we will hear lots of personal stories. Stories of love, stories of commitment, stories of hope and sadly, as always with pancreatic cancer, stories of loss. Each story will help you understand the challenges of pancreatic cancer as well as the signs and symptoms and will help you to have conversations with people and ensure that they are aware of what to look out for. Join us each day for our Purple Rainbow podcast. If you miss any of the episodes, you can catch up by visiting www.purplerainbow.co.uk where all of the podcasts will be stored for you to listen to at your leisure. Follow us on your podcast channel, like and share, And join us for an interesting month with lots of stories of love and hope. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I'm Charlotte and today is Sunday the 21st of November, which also means it's the end of week three of our daily podcasts in November for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. I can't quite believe we've made it to the end of week three already, 21 episodes. At the end of every week, we take a moment to just reflect on what we've heard so far and in some cases hear bits of the interviews that you wouldn't have heard during the week. It's been quite an emotional week this week. We've had guests sharing their stories of losing their parents, their partners, other relatives and of course friends. But we also heard from Jill. Now, Jill is a survivor of pancreatic cancer, but she's only survived because she was diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time. In fact, in total, Jill has been diagnosed with four primary cancers over the past two decades. I asked Jill if she considered herself lucky or unlucky. I'm very lucky that I had the consultant I had right from the outset. I'm very lucky that he made the investigations when I presented with breast cancer again 15 years later. Um, I had fantastic, fantastic treatment with my pancreatic consultant who is just the the most marvellous. So I had two excellent consultants. And I've now got a lung consultant who's also very excellent. So so I've got three. Well, my breast consultant has actually retired. He retired last year which was a very sad moment. So I've got a new one now. So I'm beginning to get to know him a little bit as well now. So and he's very aware. I've got, he calls me his complex case because I, <laughs> I was handed over as a complex case from um, my first consultant to my second breast consultant. But uh, no, so I feel I've been very lucky and I think anything that can be done. Um, I didn't realise until after I had pancreatic cancer that... Um, Uh, pancreatic cancer action was actually based about 10 miles drive away from where I live Um, so I got in touch with them to see if there was anything I could do um, to help them and uh, occasionally they want people to stuff envelopes or you know things like that simple things in the office Um, I went and gave them a hand to review a, a 
couple of plans that one of the marketing people had um, because that's my background. And um, I also stood on Waterloo Station with a giant blow-up pancreas um, a couple of Novembers ago, you know, trying giving out leaflets to raise awareness and to uh, to collect some funds. Um, I've done a few things uh, in the November. They um, uh, pajamas for pancang. So a couple of years I've done in my pajamas fundraising in my house with cakes and people coming and stuff like that, and gardening in my pajamas as well. Um, so I got to know them very well, lovely, lovely people. And I, their, their real focus is on finding a test of some sort, probably a blood test. You've probably been reading about the, you know, the latest things about the blood test to actually identify pancreatic cancer a whole lot earlier so that people can have um, treatments, operations, chemo, um, which will become more successful because the figures are shocking. In the last 50 years, there's been no improvement at all, really, in the survival figures. You know, most people get diagnosed when really they've got no time left at all. I have a friend in America whose husband um, presented one day with terrible, terrible pains and went to the ER there. Um, and he actually had pancreatic cancer and he was dead three weeks later. And this is not uncommon. This is a common story. A lot of people, I mean, not just with pancreatic cancer, but a lot of people are diagnosed with cancer when they go to, in America, they call it the emergency room. But, you know, when we when we, when we go to emergency um, and um, it's too late, you know, nothing can be done. And that's terrible. And it's and the trouble is, it's a lot of younger people, you know, people with families and um, you know, still got a lot of life in front of them. I'm not saying because you're younger, you need more life in front of you. I feel I want a lot of life in front of me as well. But, you know, and I'm older. But, um, you know, it's just a terrible, terrible. And the statistics, as I say, are shocking. And there's a number of people who do a huge amount of work trying to raise awareness, trying to raise, raise awareness of the symptoms. And one of the things that Pancreatic Cancer Action, for instance, has done is they've actually done a huge program of trying to make G GPs aware of what the symptoms are. Um, and um, because if you look at the symptoms, they could be anything, really. So and that's the problem. So you do need a test. So the blood test that they're all working on, the research companies are all working, not just for pancreatic cancer, but for a number of cancers, are very, very important. Now, here's a bit of insight for you. At the end of every interview, every conversation I have with people, I always ask the question, is there anything else you'd like to add? Normally, it's just so that I make sure I haven't missed anything glaringly obvious because it does happen sometimes. And nine times out of 10, when I ask the question, people answer, no, that's it. Thank you very much. But when I was speaking to Jill, she had something very important to say. I'd like to say there's an awful lot of people out there who have lost people with pancreatic cancer who are doing an amazing job of raising awareness. Um, and you'd actually think they'd want to just sort of close that that book cover down now and move on. But they're doing a great job. People like Leslie um and gorgeous gertie um are doing a lot a lot to help raise awareness and there's a lot of people suffering at the moment with pancreatic cancer who are going through the treatments there's a lovely guy called matt on twitter who's sharing his story as he goes along with his treatments um and how difficult it is and they're all doing the most fantastic job and i think if we can keep that 
symptoms awareness up with GPs. We can put money into continuing the research, into getting a test that will show early signs of pancreatic cancer. Then we will start to really get to grips with that and start to win. And people don't like the battle terminology with cancer, but I tell you, having been through it is a battle. You know, we will start to win that. And, um, you know, the, the, the shocking um, statistics will start to improve. And that's what we need, you know, improvement of those statistics and people being able to get treatment um, that will enable them to continue to live their lives. I've just six years plus now, and I've had an additional six years. I've had a, I've seen three grandchildren get older and I've had a new one born in that time. Um, and, you know, it's marvellous, absolutely marvellous that I've been able to do that. Now, I tell you what, I will not be forgetting the chat I had with Dawn about her Uncle Elvis anytime soon. Uncle Elvis died from pancreatic cancer, but he sounds like he was quite the character when he was alive. And it was amazing to hear about the influence and impact he had on Dawn's life and in particular her taste in music and now how it gives her so much comfort. My whole house is Elvis. I've got Elvis everything. I've got life-size Elvises in my home. I get a lot of comfort from Elvis. Um, I like all that stuff around me. Um, lots of my friends say, I'll oh, get rid of it all. But actually, you do get a lot of comfort from having stuff around you. Um, I like listening to Elvis. Um, we played all Elvis songs through his funeral, and we they are, many of those are my favourite. So, yeah, you do. You get a lot of comfort, a lot of comfort. And I'm sure not just from Elvis. I think people get comfort in many different ways, don't they, from different memories that they have, whether it be smells or places, people, you know, that, that touch their lives. They have memories attached to those people. I think there's something special about music as well because it, yeah. it takes you straight to where you need to be, doesn't it? Every time I hear the song by Elvis called I'll Remember You. Um, that's the one that I think that's Uncle Elvis is with me. And he is. He absolutely is. I totally believe that. We carry people that we've lost with us every day. They don't really leave us. They're just in a different space. I said it in Dawn's episode and I will say it again. I think we could all do with Uncle Elvis in our lives. And really, truly, I wish I could play you some Elvis right now. But unfortunately, we don't have the copyright for any of his songs or indeed money to pay for the copyright for any of his songs. Now, when you or a loved one is going through treatment, it can be really difficult to hear the words, you're being referred to palliative care without automatically thinking it means the worst. So I was really grateful that palliative care doctor Tony Duffy gave me an explanation about what palliative care is actually all about. I love palliative care. I think it's a, it's a fantastic approach to looking after people. And there's, I mean, there's, they keep changing the definition of what palliative care is. It changes every two or three years um, and it gets more complicated. Um, I think for me, it's never too early to be referred to palliative care um, for, for a few reasons. Um, one of them is that it's not just about end-of-life care. That is certainly a part of what we do. Um, 
but there's a whole there's whole other dimensions to it. Um, there's a there's an evolving um, specialty called supportive care or supportive cancer care, um, and what what I think we are realizing is that as treatments for many conditions, including cancers, improve, people are living longer and they're living longer with with the conditions, also with more complex treatments. Um, they're living with side effects of those treatments. Um, and along that journey, they really need support in a holistic way. So they need support for the symptoms, yes, with medications, um, but they also need rehab. They need to be need physio, they need occupational therapy, and they need spiritual support for them, what makes them a person. Quite often people get lost, the individual gets lost in this myriad of treatments, all of these different things. Um, Sometimes um, the person might be referred to day hospice um, to go along to give them a breather, to give their family a breather. Um, and to work on these things like um, their rehabilitation, their their independence. Um, it's, it's, it's something that I think is portrayed, it is certainly much, it's very much portrayed as end of life um, and almost a feeling that there is this, cut off of being treated for something or we can't do anything else we'll, we'll refer you to palliative care um, the sooner someone's involved with palliative care then that transition that sharp transition disappears and I think that sharp transition from one group of specialists suddenly to palliative care can be really um I mean, it, it can be very disconcerting for patients. It can be very, it, it can almost feel like suddenly they've been abandoned. You know, they are having all these specialists, seeing all the specialists and having the scans and having all these various tests done to palliative care. And they're wondering, well, that's just, that's just keeping me comfortable, isn't it? Um, if that input's there earlier, then a relationship can be built up. And if it does come to that point where there's no more oncology treatment, chemo, radiotherapy, then the transition over is a bit smoother because they already know the team and they know what they can do. And that is, it's not just symptom support, it's support for them as an individual, it's support for them as a family. Um, and it's also it's it's support and planning ahead for the future. Um, with this concept called advanced care planning, um, which d does come under some criticism at times, it, it's really just a way of trying to get people to reflect on in the future how would I like to be looked after when I get less well, where would I like to be. Um, 
do I have everything in place? Do I have, um, do my family need any extra support financially? Is there anything else I can access? Um, and quite often, particularly in the COVID era, um, a lot of people have been have opted to die at home. Um, and I mean, the, it, it can be a difficult thing sometimes. Um, but with having that early conversation, those early conversations in a compassionate way to, to think ahead, it lets people plan ahead so that there's less like less likelihood of a crisis and they might be able to stay at home, be with their family, avoid a hospital admission um, and a better chance of 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 you know sort of fulfilling those those wishes um crises do happen um and people do end up you know in hospital or um some people may end up in a hospice um which is another area of palliative care um but i would say that the majority of palliative care really takes place in the community carried out by GPs, district nurses, supported by hospices. Um, and then very close alongside that is, is the palliative care that happens in the acute hospitals. And um, that's palliative care teams that support and work alongside the other specialists um, and, and act as a and more of a, an advisory role. But that that support working alongside can really that can help people get home it can help people guide them in those decisions so yes yeah, it's, it's it's a i think it's an ever expanding specialty and some people have talked about doing away with the, even doing away with the term palliative care because it just has been linked so tightly with end of life care I think what would probably be better is just trying to re-educate and, and spread the word of actually what palliative care is and, and what it's not. I think it's possibly too late to change the, the name for it. Um, and I think if if we we probably need a, a kind of nationwide um Sort of public relations campaign to to, to to reset things a little bit um, and, and say, well, here's what we actually do. If you're referred to us, it doesn't mean you're dying. Um, it means that you have complex symptoms that there's a good chance that we can help you with. And if there comes a time where you don't need our help, we will step back, you know, um, that's and I think that's a really important aspect as well. Even in a hospice, the hospice where I work, I reckon up to about well over a third of patients come in and get home again, um, you know, just for symptom control or, or support. So, 
Well, Tony came on the podcast to talk about his experience of his mum being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and then sadly dying from it. In particular, it was fascinating to hear how this has affected how he treats his patients now and their families. Go back and listen to his episode in full. It came out on Monday, the 15th of November. Now, Nessie also joined me on the podcast this week. Nessie's had four people in her life get diagnosed and die from pancreatic cancer. Her husband and her best friend, both at the same time. Her cousin's husband and now her former mother-in-law too. I asked Nessie what she would like to see change when it comes to pancreatic cancer. Well, I think I would hope for a blood test for early diagnosis before any before anyone gets symptoms. A bit like men can have a PSR test for prostate cancer. And a couple of years ago, I did think that there was a possibility of that because there's a young man in in America called Jack Andraka. And when he was a young teenager, he developed a dip test, a urine dip test, I think, in his dad's basement, you know. And when it was tried on various people, it was proved to be almost 100% accurate. So I was terribly excited, and I think a lot of other people were, and sort of thought, well, this is it, this is it. Um, He's now at Princeton, I think. He's at one of the very good universities in America, and I I follow him on Twitter and so on, and I asked him about a year ago what was happening, and he said, oh, it's being tested by the drug companies. So, you know... It, it's years, it's, it's some years since the, he first developed that, but it'll be something like that that does it. Um, and it just may need be that extra pound that somebody raises, that extra cake they bake or the garden they open, that may be the, you know, the, the little bit of extra funding needed to find these, this thing. So that's what I'm going to do. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Harry, who is a student at Loughborough University. And last year, on top of everything else that was going on in the world, his dad died from pancreatic cancer, aged just 41. I asked Harry how he managed to cope with it all. It was hard. I I kind of got up the next, literally the next day and I came back to university. And I think that was me burying my head in the sand at the time. If I'm not at home... I don't have to accept, embrace, approach, see other people cry, and I can just go home and go home, go to uh, Loughborough and to uni, get on with it kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it was massively hard. I mean, I don't know how I managed to get through second year as and do my degree um, because half the time I switched off, half the time I didn't want to go to my lectures. But for me to take a year out, just to cope with with my dad's death would have he wouldn't have wanted that he'd have told me to sort it out and carry on he was the one pushing me to go back to university before he even passed away um got up one morning and literally went what are you doing why are you still here like go um so yeah it it, it, it was massively difficult but and i did miss out i i, I did miss out on a lot back home and and felt like I weren't supporting my family as much as I could but at the same time I was in no place to so I just kind of embraced the 
not a very healthy way of approaching it, but the, the, the alcohol that comes around with university, I embraced all of that aspect of, of life and just powered on through. What about now? Do you think you're, you, you're getting on better? Yeah, I think I'm, in, I'm, I'm improving now um, with, with kind of the help of friends up here, family back home um, and all important things like, like counselling and, and looking after yourself um, because after a death, that's, that's so important. Everyone neglects themselves and always focuses on other people. Yeah, yeah. And especially if you kind of feel how I felt as being the the oldest, <laughs> the oldest of, of three. The man in the family now, the one that's yeah. got all the responsibility. With with all of that, I kind of felt, oh, I can't, I, I need to make sure everyone else is okay. But I had to learn not to do that because otherwise I'd be the worst and no use to anybody anyway. So it's counterproductive to throw all your attention at other people. I'll tell you now, I wasn't anything like as mature as Harry when I was a student. And it's been so good to hear as well from Harry how supportive his university has been. Last year, they were lighting up buildings across the campus, all purple. Finally, I want to share with you the conversation I had with Liz. I often think about this chat because Liz read out a letter that her mum had written to her and her siblings before she went into hospital. Sadly, Liz's mum never came out of hospital, dying from pancreatic cancer. Now, before I play this this section out, just be warned, it is as emotional as you will imagine it to be. So if you are not quite up to hearing this, please press stop now and know that you're not going to miss any more of the episode because this is the last clip I'm playing out. Just make sure you do come back tomorrow for our latest episode. So here's Liz reading her letter from her mum. She knew something wasn't right because she left a letter and I've got the letter here. I've asked Jasmine to read this to you when the time comes. I'm not very good at putting pen to paper, but here goes. Thank you all for the love and support you have given me over the past few years. Without you four, I don't think I would have been with you so long, but I did make my 80th. I know you will all be okay. I have been worrying about one of you though. You know who I mean. I do hope things get better for you. Look after one another, please. No falling out. If you do, sort it out. Don't let it go on, please. I have tried to be a good mum, but it was hard for me to spread myself, especially when I got a lot older and my health not so good. I have made mistakes in my life, but I think we all have. I've enjoyed being your mum, watching you all grow up into four beautiful women. Giving me eight gorgeous grandchildren, four adorable great-grandchildren. Your dad would have been so very proud of you, all if he was here. I want you all to know how much I love you all. And now I am with the one I love since I was 21. Look after one another, sending loads of love to you all and lots of love to the grandchildren. I hope they all have a good life, Mum. You've got me. She knew. But how gorgeous to have that letter. She's talking to you still. And she's always there with that letter. It's the first time I've read that out. <laughs> it's really not very often I get upset during interviews. In fact, get so upset during interviews that I cry. But that letter really, really hit home. And I cannot thank Liz enough for sharing it. So thank you once again, Liz. 
Thank you to everybody who took part in the podcast this week. And of course, thank you for listening to and thank you for getting involved and thank you for sharing the podcast. I've also got a big thank you to two people who have donated to the podcast. Donating to the podcast helps keep this podcast going. So thank you very much. Anne donated in memory of her husband, Les. He died in 2020. Anne says they were lucky to have the time they did. And it was very difficult, though, towards the end of Les's life. But he was her rock and her soulmate. And Anne will always miss him. And Susan has also donated to Purple Rainbow Podcast in memory of her husband, Jay. Susan lives in New York. She's been connected to the podcasts via social media. She says, Jay was her sweetie. Thank you to both of you for donating. And remember, Leslie and I would love to hear your thoughts. You can get in touch with us at purplerainbow.co.uk. If you've missed any of this week's episodes, you can always catch up. In fact, if you've missed any of this month's episodes, you can always catch up. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. So please, please do go back and have a listen to some of those episodes. And don't forget to follow the podcast in your podcast app, which means you won't miss any of the others that are going to come along through until the end of this month, our daily podcast special for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Of course, I will be back tomorrow with a brand new episode for you.